He is more than a story. He is more than a comic book superhero. He is more than a symbol of hope. He represents our greatest aspirations. He is everything we think we can be. And yet, even with all the strength and all the power in all of the world, he may not be able to meet his greatest challenges and redeem his family's legacy. For he is the son of El. Chapter 16 Dark Justice In the first year after the Justice League took down the operations of Professors Milo, Ivo, and Strange, and without the constant new challenges created by the Professors, all of the heroes were able to get a grip on the madness that had been overtaking their cities. They were no longer being attacked by some new maniacal villain created with the specific intent of tormenting superheroes. At the Daily Planet, the news cycle seemed almost slow. Long stretches in the office brought Lois and Clark together to talk more often. How is Richard? I'd rather not talk about Richard right now. We're... we're on a break. A break? Like, breakup? I don't know. Maybe? Well... Is it the kind of break that would make it okay if we got dinner? Lois's brow furrowed and fluttered through a series of expressions. She tensed up for a brief moment, then relaxed and answered. Yes, actually, I'd like that. One date led to another, and pretty soon the two of them were starting to see each other again. Clark hoped things could be different this time. They no longer had the threat of Superman's enemies looming over them, though Superman now had administration duties the Justice League counted on him for. Whenever Lois made it clear that she hoped to see him more, Clark found himself explaining his busy schedule. He tried to be at the new league headquarters as often as possible. These explanations did not suffice for Lois, but she put up little argument besides complaining over how far the Justice League's new headquarters were. The warehouse in Starling City, where the Justice League first gathered, had been renovated into a marvelous arched building with an attached hangar from which the Javelin 17 could launch. These new headquarters were christened the Hall of Justice, a place for them to gather, meet, and even celebrate. Many heroes without the ability to fly, or without super speed, lived there for part of the year. Always staffed, a team was available to relieve suffering in the face of disaster wherever they were needed around the world. Their lives as heroes took on a dimension of celebrity, though Batman always encouraged them to maintain a low profile. None of this fame was new for The Flash. He already had his own PR agent and citywide holiday, but Clark preferred to attend as few events as possible. Instead, he made sure he was available to join the rest of the League wherever they flew in the Javelin 17. It was during one of these missions when he was halfway around the world that he received an unexpected message. Jonathan Kent was dying. Clark shot around the Earth in minutes, meeting Jonathan and Martha at the hospital. Jonathan had had a stroke and was in a coma. Over the next few days, Superman was nowhere to be seen. Clark sat by Jonathan's bedside with Martha, feeling like there was nothing he could do. For the first time, he knew what it was like to truly be powerless. Days dragged on as they stayed by Jonathan's bedside watching his health decline. When Jonathan finally did pass away, the loss gnawed at Clark. But most of all, he felt like he had failed Martha in some way. This all happened only weeks after Clark and Lois had gotten back together. His grief reminded her of his depression from years ago 
And though she did her best to be supportive, when he started spending all of his free time in Smallville with Martha, Lois suggested they probably not get back into a relationship. She and Richard were also talking about ending their break. Clark agreed to an amicable split with Lois. He found himself pondering mortality and wanted to avoid attachments. In the weeks following Jonathan's passing, Clark spent his mornings working the farm. Throughout the rest of the week, he juggled his time between the Justice League and the Daily Planet. One evening, Clark came back to the farm to find Bruce Wayne waiting for him. He had brought company, a grim-looking man with deep red hair. He wore a black three-piece suit and carried himself with the casual ease of another generation. He and Bruce shared a common austerity in their demeanor. Clark Kent, may I introduce you to Jason Blood? Jason, this is Kalel, the last son of Krypton. Martha called from the porch. Are you boys coming in for dinner? We would love to, Martha, if it isn't too much trouble. Oh no, Bruce, not at all. Come on in. Martha had plates set for four. Apparently, Bruce had called ahead. After dinner, the three men went out to the back porch to talk. So really, what brings Bruce Wayne to Kent Farm at this time of year? It's time you learn about the Lightkeepers. Clark looked from Bruce to Jason and then back to Bruce. Are you both former Lightkeepers? Jason answered in his eclectic Scottish accent. No, I was once a member of the Shadow Watchers. The what now? Bruce explained. After Enlil killed Enki and the Lightkeepers made their plan to destroy Krypton, not all of the Lightkeepers agreed. They saw the destruction of Krypton as going against everything Enki stood for. This group left the Lightkeepers, forming a new order, the Shadow Watchers, who would go on to work in the fringes of society. But with time, their ways became corrupted by power. Not unlike the Lightkeepers, they created their own infrastructure, forming black markets and organized crime. They did it with the aim of stopping the Lightkeepers and seizing their power. Clark turned to Jason. Is that why you left the Shadow Watchers? I left them long ago when the corruption first began to take hold. How long ago was that? Aye, going on a thousand years now. Hold on. How old are you? A wizard bound my soul to a demon, and now I am forever cursed to walk this wretched world. Clark failed to come up with a proper response to this information. His raised eyebrows cued Bruce. Jason Blood is the host of the demon, Etterkin. Blood clenched his fists. Curse that demon. The Shadow Watchers bound Etrican to me as their weapon. Even after they became corrupted, their demon still continues the fight for them, all to stop Felix Faust and his kind from regenerating. Clark's curiosity was piqued. Who's Felix Faust? A sorcerer who has attained a kind of immortality, Bruce answered. In a vain effort to become like Vandal Savage, added Blood. Clark decided now was a good time to sit down. Jason Blood spat on the ground. Savage is said to be the bastard son of Enlil himself. No one knows his true age. Bruce cleared his throat. Right now, he's not nearly as dangerous as Faust, and Faust is poised to be a greater threat still. Clark felt this whole conversation was completely out of proportion. How is this Faust supposed to be a threat? Faust must renew his immortality with a sacrifice every thousand years. But each time Faust regenerates, he requires exponentially more lives. His existence is an abomination. Blood's voice conveyed his disdain. Clark addressed his question to Bruce. How do we stop him? There is probably nothing you, in particular, can do to stop him. Then why are you in Smallville? It's Grundy. Solomon Grundy? That giant zombie from the museum? 
He's broken free from Star Labs. How? Solomon Grundy is the creation of Felix Faust. Jason Blood's shoulders tightened as he explained along with Bruce. And now Faust has summoned him back. Faust knows we'll be coming for him before he can complete his ceremony. Grundy will be there to ensure we can't stop him. Aye, Grundy is no normal beast. He's endowed with an undead curse that's impervious to any magic we have. That's where you come in. We'll need you to keep him busy. All of this was a bit confusing for Clark, but he could see why they came to him. Facing Solomon Grundy was indeed a job for Superman. All right, count me in. When is Faust performing this ceremony? Tonight. Clark rolled his eyes. I should have figured you'd wait till the last possible moment to tell me. Where are we headed? Do you want to ride in your car while I carry it? We have other transportation arranged. Blood straightened his tie. Are you ready to go? In a flash of light, Clark transformed into Superman. Ready when you are. Batman gave Blood an affirmative nod, cueing him to pull a small box out of his breast pocket. From the box, he removed a stick of chalk and began drawing small markings on the back porch. What's this? He's summoning Dr. Fate. Summoning a doctor. He's not a regular kind of doctor. When Blood completed drawing the emblem, he took a match from the box, sparked it, and lit the small chalk drawing on fire. It was no normal chalk. The lines flared up for a brief second and then dissipated in an anticlimactic puff of smoke. The three men stood in the dark of night left only with the sound of crickets surrounding them. Clark wondered if that was all. He almost asked if there was more to it, when a spark appeared hovering in the air above Blood's chalk markings. From the spark grew a person-sized onyx shimmering in the air in front of them. A man emerged from the brilliant icon. He was clad in blue with a gold cape, boots, belt, and helmet. The helmet covered his face. Its only opening was two holes for eyes, impossibly dark and endlessly deep. When he spoke, his voice reverberated inside his helmet, as though he were speaking from another realm. Jason Blood, Bruce Wayne, Kalan, will you join me at the Tower of Fate? Superman looked at Batman and raised a single eyebrow. What kind of doctor is he? Bruce and Blood did not answer. Instead, both proceeded to step toward Dr. Fate. Superman followed suit. As he did, the surroundings of Kent Farm melted away, and he found himself, along with Blood, Bruce, and Dr. Fate, stepping into a vast circular chamber. A staircase in front of them led to a raised platform at its center. Circular balconies climbed up the tower and out of sight. Each tier was lined with bookshelves up its walls, interrupted by the occasional door. At the top of the stairs, on the central platform, Superman could see there were three others waiting for them. Where are we? Fate's voice rang out from inside his helmet. Nowhere in your world, Superman. The Tower of Fate is on a plane of existence all its own. No one enters or leaves without my invitation. Superman looked back through the door they had just entered through, but like the eyes of Fate's helmet, there was only a bottomless darkness filled with silence. For a moment, Clark's mind fell into that nothingness. He could not pull himself from it until he felt Bruce touch his shoulder. Come meet the others. On the central platform at the top of the staircase was a comfortable den. It had tables, couches, chairs, and an inexplicable fireplace with a chimney that seemed to disappear into nothing. Sitting on the plush furniture waiting for them was a scruffy man in a trench coat and two women, one of them blindfolded. The woman without the blindfold looked familiar to Clark, though he could not place where he knew her face. As Clark reached the platform, Dr. Fate proclaimed in a grandeur announcement. 
Welcome, son of El. You are the first of your people to come here. I am Dr. Fate, keeper of the Library of Order, emissary of Nabu. Jason Blood sat down next to the blindfolded woman on one of the couches. She held herself with a regal demeanor, perfectly upright. Though her eyes were covered, she looked directly at Clark before introducing herself. It is an honor, Kalel. I am Madame Xanadu. Madame Xanadu presented her hand and Clark slightly bowed as he took it. Dr. Fate continued with the introductions. I'm sure you recognize Zatanna Zatara. Clark noticeably gawked when he realized where he had recognized her from. She was a famous stage magician whose tricks baffled even him. It's a pleasure to meet you. I love your show. Zatanna blushed. Well, consider it mutual. You put on a pretty good show yourself. The man in the trench coat sprung from his seat next to Zatanna and handed Superman his business card. I'll just jump in and introduce myself. Constantine. John Constantine. Exorcist, occultist, and master of the dark arts. A pleasure to meet you, Superman. Big fan. Constantine sat down once more. The card he had just handed Clark appeared to have vanished from Clark's hand. Dr. Fate chimed back in. And finally, though you cannot see him now, we are joined by the spirit of Boston Brand. Clark looked around the seating space, seeing no one else in the room. He wasn't sure how to respond to this introduction. The confusion showed on his face, prompting Constantine to explain. You may have heard of Boston back when he was a circus performer. Something of a daredevil. Went by the name Deadman, which is pretty ironic, all considering. Still unsure, Clark awkwardly waved hello to greet the unseen spirit in the room. Constantine stood up again, clapping his hands together. Now that you've met everyone, we're gonna have to put pleasantries aside. If only I could fill you in on the details, but we have little time before Faust begins. So, ah, here's the plan. Dr. Fate will transport us. Madame Xanadu will be our guide. Boston Brand is our emissary. The lovely Zatanna and I will see to Faust. Etrican is our muscle. And you, big red and blue, are going to be our even bigger muscle. And our only chance against Solomon Grundy. What's Batman's part in the plan? Bruce answered the question himself, having just rejoined the group after changing into his cape, cowl, and supersuit. Logistics. I make it happen. And we appreciate you so much, Mr. Batman. Batman glared at Constantine, but the self-proclaimed master of the dark arts ignored him. Are you following so far, Mr. Superman? I understand, and I'm ready. Well, look at the confidence on this one. Don't worry, mate. You don't need to put on any airs for the likes of me. Zatanna giggled. Though John does like a good show. John Constantine paid her teasing no mind. Instead, he walked up to Superman, coming within a foot of him. His scrutinizing glare filled Clark with unease. No one's told you where we're going yet, have they? Clark shook his head. Constantine's voice took on a low, soft hush. Faust will be harvesting souls from the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. We'll be meeting him there, in between realms. That's a place you can go. Constantine cocked his head back. Are you sure you're ready, sweetie? I'm not so sure I am. A sinister smile crept over Constantine's face. Well, at least now you're being practical. Batman cut off the exchange. Enough theatrics, Constantine. It's time we go. Clark was still taken aback, but Zatanna whispered to him. Don't let him get to you. We'll keep you safe out there. With everyone gathered around him, Dr. Fate conjured the form of the Onyx to serve as their portal. As they stepped forward, they simultaneously stepped out of the Tower of Fate 
and into an arid desert of darkness. Eight of them stood together. As promised, Boston Brand was visible in this plane of existence. He was bald and wore a red circus trapeze costume with a wide and flamboyant collar. Superman, Superman, Superman. It really is a pleasure to meet you. I mean, I always hoped I'd meet you when I was alive, but what can I say? It's an absolute pleasure. Brand enthusiastically shook Clark's hand. Well, uh, sorry you died, Mr. Brand. Oh, don't even worry about it. You would not believe what I've done since dying. While the two of them became acquainted, Madame Xanadu removed her blindfold, revealing brilliantly illuminated eyes. In this realm of darkness, she wasn't blind. Xanadu saw what the others could not, a passage in this realm of shadows. The path she led them on was not at all a straight line. Instead, she wound them between obstacles they could not see. Along the way, Superman reached out to the side of their path. Slowly, his hand felt a combination of cold, numbness, burning, and pain. Yanking it back when he could bear it no longer, he dared not veer from the way Madame Xanadu led them. He didn't say any of this out loud, not wanting to be the one to break the silence. No matter how bleak he thought the mood, they were well out of his area of expertise. Nothing he might say would have any bearing on their mission. The sound of a river grew steadily louder until they turned their course and walked along an invisible babbling stream. When they stopped, John Constantine finally broke the silence. Alrighty, friends, this is where we wait. It may take a while, but don't get too comfy. We may need to defend ourselves should trouble come along. Clark tried engaging Batman in conversation. What are we waiting for? Instead of answering, Batman walked away. He, Jason Blood, and Fate all stood around the perimeter to keep watch. Clark's question hung in the air until Boston Brand answered. We're waiting for Charon, the farrier. He's got a boat that can ferry us across the river. It shouldn't be too long. But then again, I'm dead, and time don't tick here like it do out there, am I right? Clark nodded. I've never really been dead, so I can't argue with that. Good one. Funny. I like your attitude, Soups. And I gotta admit, I like that getup of yours. When I first saw you, back when I was still alive, I asked myself, is that one of our guys? Clark scratched his head. Our guys? Yeah, you know, circus guys. You with your whole strongman getup. I'm pretty sure that's where my mom got her inspiration from when she designed it. Ah, I knew it. Does she got a circus background? No, but she used to do costume design for the theater. Used to? I hope you don't mind me asking, but your ma, is she dead? You want me to find her while we're here? Oh, no, no. She's alright. She's alive at the farm right now, all by herself and probably wondering where I've gone to. Ah, a widow, huh? You want me to find your old man? What? Really? Oh, yeah. Most folks don't get far past the river. What do you mean? Well, after their funeral, the ferry brings them over to the other side. And from there, they usually just sit on the shore, waiting for someone. Or they just wander, aimlessly until they forget who they were. After that, it's just a matter of time before they fall back in the river and do it all again. What about the ones who don't stay on the shore, or wander? Where do they go? Well, a few of them try to go for the mountains. Most never make it to the mountains, though. The valley is pretty unforgiving on souls still attached to their existence. Are we going to the mountains? Oh yeah, we're going to the mountains. For sure. Boston's words trailed off when he noticed a faint light approaching from the direction of the river. 
He slowly stood back up. If you'll excuse me, I have some negotiating to attend to. Boston went over to speak to Constantine while the light slowly grew closer. Its glow belonged to a lantern strapped to an unusual boat's bow. The farrier stood silent as he rowed his boat to shore. Boston Brand went over to speak to him. They appeared to haggle a moment before Boston waved them all over. Before the group walked over to join Boston, Dr. Fate announced that this is where he would leave them and that they must summon him when their mission was complete. Boston called over to the group, urging them to hurry. All right, everyone. This here is Charon. He usually don't ferry the living over, but I promised him it was a one-way trip, so we're good. Just as they began boarding, Constantine warned them not to touch the river. Dr. Fate saw them off as they pulled away from the shore. He soon disappeared into his onyx-shaped portal and back to his tower. On the ferry boat, Charon was a solemn spirit. While he paddled the oar, Boston regaled everyone with stories. It was through a deal with Charon that Boston Brand was able to pass between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. Approaching the other side of the shore, Clark could see that, as promised, it was spotted with souls sitting on the river's bank. They appeared as faint ghosts looking longingly over the water. Behind them were crowds of aimless wanderers, a tide of souls reminding one another of their mortal sorrows, all lost in their memories until all they once knew and remembered had worn away. When the boat finally docked and the party stepped ashore, Boston turned to Clark and leaned in close. What do you say? You want to talk to your father while we're here? Clark had thought about it on the way over and didn't hesitate to answer. Yeah, I would like that. boy. Now what was his name? Jonathan Kent. All right, okay, let me see. Boston looked all around, up and down the shore. Nope. I don't see him. When did you say he died? A few weeks ago. A few weeks? Really? That is weird. And you had the funeral already? Oh yeah, only a few days later. So he must have crossed the river by now. Huh. He shrugged it off and they grouped up with the others. The meandering crowd of souls looked so sparse from a distance. But amidst them, there was a dense sea of ephemeral people. Constantine, Xanadu and Zatanna gathered close to one another. Constantine quietly chanted something and then sparked his metal lighter. It emitted a brilliant magenta torch. Madame Xanadu lit the top of her staff with it, and Zatanna lit her wand with the pink fire. Constantine turned to the rest of them, his lighter still burning. So here's the deal for anyone who hasn't done this before. To these ghosts you see here, it is we who are the ghosts. But these sorry saps don't know where they are or what they're up to. So they are very impressionable at the moment. And trust me, the last thing you want to do is get yourself mixed up with one of these bloody bastards. So these torches we have here will keep them at bay. And we're going to be using the buddy system. Jason, you're with Madame Xanadu. Boston, I suggest you stick with them for safety. Superman, you're with Zatanna. Batman, I think this would be a good time for you and I to run over our plan. Zatanna was a small woman with a big personality. She was excited to be paired off with Superman. See, I told you we'd take care of you. Once again, Madame Xanadu took the lead. As they followed her in pairs, the spirits parted away from them to avoid the glow of their torches. Zatanna told Clark all about the next stage of their journey. The Valley of Shadows can be even worse than these shores. These spirits will haunt you if they get entangled with you. But in the valley, there are spirits that have been there for so long they become like vampires. 
They're harmless to other dead souls, but they're so hungry for life, they'll go after us just for a taste of it. When do we get to the valley? Asked Clark. Oh, we're arriving right now. As they spoke, the crowd of spirits around them appeared to have slowly dispersed. What are we going to do? This is the best we can do for now. Hold a perimeter to repel them. Maybe I could fly up and keep a lookout. Zatanna winked at Clark. You can go ahead and try, sweetie, but I don't think that's how it works here. Clark did try, but she was right. He couldn't fly in this realm. They continued on until it seemed to Clark that the ground began having texture. He looked down to see it was sandy. They were walking slowly uphill. Looking up, it seemed that there was the faintest form of a landscape to be seen all around them. They were headed toward the mountains. Not long after Clark realized this, they stopped once again, this time to cast new spells. Zatanna used the sand to form a sled large enough for all of them to ride on. Clark was full of questions. How does it move? Is there a spell for that? I'm afraid not, said Jason Blood, not climbing aboard the sled with the others. The burden will be mine to bear, mine to bear as Etrakin. He muttered a short chant and a flash of light enveloped him. In Jason Blood's place stood a hideous caped goblin, a hulking man of enormous proportion, clad in red and black. His face with horns, gills, and ravenous teeth looked like many creatures all at once. His voice rumbled with a deep reverberation. Xanadu will steer the way, while I, Etrekin, will pull the sleigh. With the demon's incomprehensible strength and lumbering arms, he galloped faster than any horse, racing them across the barren desert. This land was inhabited by the most lost of souls, shadowy creatures in a world of shadows, some of them massive, appearing on the horizon. These malformed beasts noticed the unique smell of the living in their desert of despair and took chase. They hungered to devour this enchanted sleigh full of live souls. A few of these monsters seemed to be gaining on them when Batman removed what looked like a miniature grenade from his utility belt. He threw it to the side of their sled's wake, where it exploded in a flash, a bang, and a cloud of gas. The explosion lured the lead pursuers away, peeling from the pack to go after the decoy. Batman pulled out two more of these devices and handed one to Superman, directing him to throw it further off from their trajectory. A couple of these abominations went after the bait, yet at least two more were gaining on the sled in the chase. I only have three bio-grenades left. Zatanna had an idea. Here, give them to me. She enlarged them, five times their previous size and weight. Superman hurled them off into the distance where their explosion had such an impact that the life-hungry souls lost interest in their sledded prey altogether. Upon reaching the highlands, Etrican could no longer navigate the sled through the rocky terrain scattered along their way. Here must end our sleigh ride lock. Now on foot we must embark. Yet before they could get out of the sand, another of the desert's tormented creatures caught up with them, stampeding out of the darkness. Superman impulsively went after it, when from many yards away, he heard Constantine somehow whisper in his ear, Don't do it, mate. Save them for the demon. This gave Superman just enough pause to let Etrigan get to the monster first and promptly dispose of it. Smart choice there, Constantine assured him when it was over. Etrigan is made of counter curses. You have no idea what that thing could have done to you. Etrigan, by comparison, seemed to have garnered some zeal from devouring the poor soul lost inside of the shadowy beast. When the commotion was over, Madame Xanadu called them all once more to follow her, but this time her pace was slow and ponderous. 
This is not the path I know. I fear we were thrown off course during the chase. She and Constantine consulted one another while the others silently waited to resume their trek. The jagged rocky outcrops they navigated between were too sharp for climbing or sitting on, so they all stood about as they quietly discussed their predicament. Etrican had his own suspicions as to why Madame Xanadu could not find the way. The demon explained in rhyme, This is the work of Faust. He has hexed this path with doubt. Boston wasn't so sure it was Faust. I don't know. I've heard these rocks move. All these mountain paths are shifting and moving around. Zatanna slowly stepped away from a rock jutting out of the nearby sand. Have you ever seen these rocks move? As they speculated on their impasse, while Constantine and Xanadu continued their examination of the area, footsteps suddenly came upon them from behind. They were all startled and taken aback. Etrican readied for another attack from a monstrous lost soul still following them. Instead, out of the darkness, the form of a familiar man approached. It was the spirit of Jonathan Kent. Is that you, son? Pa? Clark was astonished to see his father emerge. It's me, all right. But what's going on? What happened? Are you dead, too? No, no, Pa. I'm okay. I didn't die. Not yet, anyway. What are you and your friends up to here? This is as all the place as any to find you. Oh, we're looking for a path into the mountains. Looking for a path? How did you lose it? Well, Madame Xanadu over there. She was able to see it before, but now, well... Not anymore then? Apparently not. We've been waiting here for a while, but she seems more confused now than when we got here. How about I show you the way? You can see the path? Sure can. It's practically glowing. This whole land has been so brilliant with colors, but the path is the brightest part. I saw it after crossing the river, and it seemed familiar. So eventually, I took to walking it. I'd be happy to show you the way. Clark introduced Jonathan to his new friends, and the two of them walked ahead of the others as Jonathan guided their way. There was so much Clark wanted to discuss. I'm really sorry I wasn't able to save you. Oh shoot, son. I never expected you to keep me from dying. You've never let me down. Even when you kept breaking that banister. I'm still sorry about that, too. Well... You don't have to be. You only made me a better carpenter. They caught each other's glance and exchanged a knowing smile. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I miss you. I'm sorry you're gone. Oh, Clark. I'm just going up this mountain here. I won't be far. We're both part of the same god. That doesn't ever change. Clark looked up and noticed clouds for the first time. As they walked into the mountains, the world around them became more visible. The river was faintly gleaming in the distance. A fork in the road ahead caused Jonathan to slow his pace. Clark worried that he wouldn't see Jonathan again after the fork, and that this was their final goodbye. Recognizing how much of the man he'd become was inspired by Jonathan Kent, there was so much he wanted to say. All that came out was simply, Thank you, Pa. Clark, being your father was an honor. And for all its challenges, it truly was a blessing and an opportunity. I should be thanking you, son. I don't know if I'd be here on this mountain if it weren't for you in my life. As soon as the others caught up to them, 
Madame Xanadu saw their way along the fork to the left. As Jonathan and Clark both expected, this is where their paths parted. Clark was reluctant. I don't want to say goodbye. You don't have to. I'll never be too far. Go on, son. Your friends are waiting for you. Clark looked Jonathan in the eyes. Instead of saying goodbye, he simply said, Thank you for being my pa. Thank you for being my son. Clark turned around and trotted away, up the path and to the left, to meet the others. They were waiting, not far up ahead. This was where he was expected to take the lead. They were close, only two bends in the path away before they came to an opening in the rocks. Beyond it was a modest valley with a small temple at its center. This is where the group would wait while Etterkin and Superman drew Solomon Grundy from his hiding place. When the hulking man emerged, he seemed even larger than when Clark remembered him. Grundy going to smash Red Cape Man! He took a short moment to size both of them up. Grundy going to smash Red Cape Man's ugly friend too! Without waiting, the behemoth pumped his fists and charged at them. He was far faster than he had been in the past. Superman dashed forward. Taking a deep breath, he exhaled. Yet to Clark's surprise, his cold breath did not work in this realm. Instead, Grundy hit him full force, launching Superman into the rock wall behind him. Etterkin charged in to help him fight and was also handily repelled. Grundy threw off their repeated attacks with greater rage each time. Superman and Etterkin took turns bounding at the beast, repeatedly being beaten back and repelled. Their efforts appeared futile, only injuring Etterkin progressively with each attack. Yet the battle proved to be enough to occupy Grundy. The others used this distraction to sneak into the temple and confront Felix Faust. Boston Brand fell back from the group, thinking it best he not go near an evil sorcerer, or any exorcisms for that matter. When Etterkin could take no more of a beating, he reverted back to Jason Blood. While Blood lay limp on the ground, Boston possessed his body and got him to safety, away from the falling rocks. Superman and Solomon Grundy brought down a small rock slide as they wrestled each other into the valley's rocky walls. Grundy managed to get the advantage over Superman, incapacitating him in a chokehold he couldn't break free of. It seemed to Clark as though the power Grundy received from this place was only getting stronger. His straining became ever less effective, while the pain throughout his body grew in intensity. It tore at him until a familiar voice spoke up. Solomon, is there anything you want to talk about? Upon hearing his first name, Grundy relaxed his body. Grundy no want to talk. It's alright to be angry sometimes, Solomon. But it doesn't fix anything to hurt people and break things when you're mad and angry. The only way to feel better is to talk about it. But Grundy must fight to be set free. Grundy must kill if he want to die. Well, we're all dead here, Solomon. So why don't you let my son go? Solomon looked up to Jonathan Kent. His eyes began welling with moisture. He let go of Clark and collapsed to the ground, sobbing tears of regret and relief. Jonathan assured Clark, Go on ahead. I'll stay here with Solomon. Superman looked up at Jonathan in awe. Thank you, Pa. What he had just witnessed was like a scene from his childhood. Jonathan Kent was truly a unique man. Clark had little time to consider all this before he dashed into the temple to offer what help he could. Inside, Constantine, Zatanna, and Madame Xanadu surrounded a frail man dressed in ceremonial gowns. He was being held in the air by a swirling vortex of light. 
It was Felix Faust. It seemed that his magic was being reversed. He was rapidly aging. Batman was in the corner of the room, going through Faust's chests of artifacts. This seemed to infuriate Faust most of all. Batman was using Ray Palmer's technology to shrink the chests and pack them into his utility belt. Seeing this, Faust shrieked at him. Curse you, Batman! You and Ra's al Ghul will not replace me! Curse you both! These were his final words as he withered beyond the ability to speak at all, becoming nothing but dust as he was sucked into the vortex. When he was gone and the exorcism was complete, Batman looked surprised to see Superman, almost disappointed. Back outside, Jonathan Kent comforted Solomon Grundy in a hug as the behemoth continued to sob. Boston and Jason stood nearby in awe. The amazement was shared by all, but Constantine was clearly not at ease. He continued to look all around them, wary of any further complications. This was a brilliant success, but we should not press our luck and linger. With a stick of chalk in his lighter, he summoned Dr. Fate. Fate's signature onyx appeared and he invited them all back to the tower. Boston decided to stay behind. Don't worry about me. I can get back on my own. Clark gave Jonathan one last goodbye. Thanks again, Paul. I'm still learning from you. Jonathan stood up and gave Clark a hug. Clark laid his head on Jonathan's shoulder. What will I do without a father? Why... Perhaps you'll have to become a father, won't you, Clark? He stepped back and looked at his son one last time. Go on now. Get back to the world of the living. And give Martha plenty of hugs for me. Clark turned around, stepped toward fate, and found himself with everyone else, once again walking into the Tower of Fate. This was not a celebratory group. Dr. Fate didn't hesitate to open portals for everyone's departure. Constantine went with Zatanna, while Madame Xanadu and Jason Blood paired off and left together. Fate offered to return Batman to the Kent's farm, but he declined. Tell Martha she can keep the car. Fate, you can let me out of the Batcave. Clark didn't want to end the night just then. He needed to process all he'd been through. I'll just go to the Batcave with you if that's okay. As though you've ever asked to come over before. They stepped through Fate's portal and into the Batcave. Batman immediately crossed the space to his computer and got to work. Clark just watched him for a moment. Clearly Batman wasn't going to bring it up. Superman took a step forward. Bruce. Batman's continued silence was unusual, even for him. Clark decided it had to end. What was Faust talking about back there? Who is Ra's al Ghul? Batman stopped working, slowly stood back up, and turned around to face Superman. He's the head of the League of Shadows. Wait, who is the League of Shadows? They are what's left of the Shadow Watchers. And what do you have to do with their leader? We can discuss this later. You've already learned enough new information tonight. Later? Why shouldn't I know what's going on now? Ross al Ghul is... complicated. Then what did Faust mean about you replacing him? What did you take from him? Faust thinks I worked for the League of Shadows and took his artifacts for Ra's al Ghul. Who did you take them for? I took them for the same reason we confiscated Arthur Ivo's laboratory. But why would you take them at all? They were in a dimension where everyone is dead. Were they really not safe there of all places? Are you just as naive as the day we met? Of course they weren't safe there. You would never understand. I tell you what you need to know, when you need to know it. Well then tell me, why does Faust think you work for the League of Shadows? It's nothing you need to worry about. Batman was toying with Clark and it made his temper hot. 
The agitation came out in his voice. Stop lying to me, Bruce. The cave quivered in the echo of Superman's heated demand. In one swift movement, Batman's hand swept by his belt and rose next to his own face, displaying the back of his hand. On his finger, he had slipped on a ring, glowing with a familiar sickly green light. It was kryptonite. I don't answer to you and I'm taking no chances. Clark took a step back, searching for words, but he only found the welling up of tears. Before they could reach his eyes, he turned away and flew back to Metropolis. A sense of betrayal hung over him as he returned home to sleep off the night. Thank you for listening. I'm Isaac Bluefoot. Senevel is written and produced by myself. If you're enjoying this audiobook, please recommend it to friends and write a review. It really helps. Another way to show support is at patreon.com bluefoot. This story was inspired by the Superman and DC comics and characters, originally created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, with additional contributions by Gardner Fox, Mike Sikowski, Bill Finger, Sheldon Moldoff, Bob Kane, Robert Kaniger, Carmine Infantino, Jack Kirby, Alfred Bester, Martin O'Dell, Howard Sherman, David Michelini, Val Mayerick, Julia Schwartz, Murphy Anderson, Alan Moore, Steve Bissett, Arnold Drake, Dennis O'Neill, and Neil Adams. Manuscript editing assistance by Trisha Reel. Music in this episode was made by Blue Dot Sessions, Pottington Bear, Vortex, Kai Engel, Frauender, and The Cow Goes Moo. See the episode notes for details. For more of my work, get yourself a deck of Omen Quest cards at omenquestcards.com. If nothing else, they are beautiful. And be sure to listen to the next episode, Chapter 17, Reformed Citizen.